Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We will be discussing one of our favorite parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, And I want to uh, just remind you in this, this is from Luke 10, 25 through 37, but that parable doesn't start at the beginning. It actually provides us with some important context, I think. And so um, I'm going to have Alan take it away. But 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 note that we're not going to just jump into the, the story we all know. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. Yeah. yeah. Our gospel lesson for today takes us into the heart of Jesus' parables in the travel narrative of Luke's gospel. And it's as a, just as a reminder, it's here that Luke presents us with his unique perspective on who Jesus is and what it means to follow him in discipleship. And as we've already seen in Luke's gospel, both of those perspectives are going to challenge the norms that the people would have assumed. Now, and as Christy mentioned, um, we don't go straight into the parable. And while the setup for the parable here is a little more involved than most of the other parables in this section of Luke's gospel, this is a common thing. In in Luke's gospel, the setup for the parable is just as important as the parable Mm -hmm. itself. And in a lot of these parables that we've talked about that are unique to Luke's gospel, Luke has at least just a a one-sentence statement or some kind of of way in which he, he gives you sort of the clue for the interpretation mm-hmm. of the parable. And so that's what's going on here, I think, in that in that Luke chooses to place the discussion about the great commandments from the synoptic gospel tradition. It is it is material that that is shared with Matthew and Mark, but Luke chooses to place that discussion here as opposed to Matthew and Mark who both place it in the context of the debates between Jesus and the Jewish religious mm-hmm. leaders in Jerusalem during his mm-hmm. final week. So then Luke introduces the story by telling us that a lawyer was trying to test Jesus. And at the end of this narrative introduction, also that he was trying to justify himself mm-hmm. in verse 29. You know, um, when I read when I read your notes on this lawyer, my mind had originally gone to scribe. Maybe mm-hmm. that's because we see scribe in the other. Yes, So indeed. this is actually a yes, different indeed. word here. It is indeed. And and this, this term lawyer or nomikos is one that is used more in, in um, Luke than we find in the other gospels. The scribe or the grammatus is, is a more familiar figure in Matthew and Mark. Uh, but the reality is, is that the role of a scribe started, you know, as an official role in any court and it started long before Jesus day. But in the Jewish context, the scribes also became the experts in the interpretation and teaching of the law or the Torah. And therefore, there was some overlap in the label of, labels of Jewish leaders. We may note that in the parallel in, math, in, in, in uh, Matthew, uh, the scribe who asked about the great commandment was a Pharisee. So, so in Mark, it's a scribe. Mm-hmm. In Matthew, it's a Pharisee. The, the, this person is named a Pharisee. And in Luke, this person is named a lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's very likely because of the overlap uh, of the role of a scribe, this scribe could have been a Pharisee and a lawyer or a basically a scholar in the Torah, you okay. know, an expert in the, in the study yeah, and interpretation and that, of the and Torah. That makes, that makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Well, and I, I'm, I wanted to focus on that because I don't know that we – I don't know that we would have had the opportunity to really understand that that there there was some overlap in that in that term scribe and lawyer and uh, scribes had different roles right and and, yeah. and this one perhaps was a Pharisee and an expert in the law. Okay, yeah. So more had more knowledge. More. Yeah. Yeah. He wasn't okay. just a an, an official you know right. scribe. He was also right. a scholar and and possibly affiliated with the Pharisees. Um, so this is our, this is kind of our, our, our background. So what what goes on next? Well, this then I think this this introductory setup in in Luke's gospel sets the parable of the Good Samaritan in the context of Jesus' criticism of the Jewish okay. religious leaders. Okay. We're going to find this is going to be a theme in the parables in this section of Luke's gospel, and and here in Luke's gospel, the lawyer is portrayed as someone who knows the letter of the law but does not act in accordance with the spirit of the law. Uh, you know, it's... And yeah, it, yeah, that's... I mean, he, issue, he knows right? to answer the question rightly, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, the law, the, the, 
the, the summary of the law was to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and to love your neighbors yourself. But he doesn't, by, by you know, the way he, he responds to Jesus, it. he just, he, he shows he has no intention of actually putting that command into practice. You know, God, that, that's so interesting. I think that so often happens today, mm-hmm. right? Where you have a law, but people don't realize why the law is there. And mm-hmm. so they go by the letter instead of the intent. And that's, that's or even, even the principles for Christian living and the, or the mm-hmm. principles of the 10 commandments say, you know, we think about some of those things. We, 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 we know what it is, but we don't understand what the purpose right, of it is. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so I think though, even though the lawyer is the one who's questioning Jesus in Luke, I think it's important and interesting to note that Jesus does not explicitly use a scribe or a lawyer as one of his foils in the parable, but only a priest and a Levite uh, who would have been affiliated with the party of the Sadducees, hmm. who they were kind of the the rivals to the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. And this lawyer may very well have despised priests and Levites because there was no, there was no love lost between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They mm-hmm. had different power bases and, and they saw each other through a critical light. Um, and so um, uh, I think it's interesting that Jesus tells the parable really kind of, he tailors it to this lawyer or this scribe by, by making sort of the foils against which he sets the Samaritan as the, as the priest and the Levite. I think that's uh... That's not a subtlety I might not have picked up on this, this, I think because many of us just kind of lump Pharisees and Sadducees together Mm -hmm. and they were not together. They were not together. (laughs) Exactly. And so this is a, this is a, another layer kind of of depth Mm -hmm. about the, the situations being, being portrayed here. Right. So, So, but at the end of the parable, it's clear too, that the lawyer is also guilty of ignoring the command to love one's neighbor, Mm -hmm. at least ignoring what is the spirit of that command. Yep. That makes sense. Well, and it, that is a a fair criticism, I think, of many people. I mean, I think I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's what they're trying to pull out too. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Moving on. Yeah. So then, Luke's version of this passage is also unique in that it is the lawyer who summarizes the requirements in the law in terms of love for God and love for neighbor by utilizing the Shema from Deuteronomy six four and five, and also the Levitical holiness code from Leviticus nineteen eighteen. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus is the one who formulates this summary in response to the question asked. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an important difference as well. It's the lawyer himself who mm-hmm. formulates the summary of the command. Yeah. Now, that Jesus upholds and intensifies the demand for moral obedience in the Hebrew Bible is a commonly recognized theme in Matthew's Mm -hmm. gospel. You know, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees Mm -hmm. who were meticulous. They were known uh, for being meticulous about keeping every little commandment in, in in the law. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that. But you know, because Luke's gospel has the reputation of being more open to outcasts, I think we may find it surprising to learn that we have a similar pattern here. But perhaps we shouldn't be surprised because we've already seen this pattern in Luke's infancy mm-hmm. narratives where Luke portrays Jesus' parents right. as very Torah observant in all things. And so I think it should come as no surprise, really, that we find this theme of, of you know, obeying the commands right, right. of God in, in the Lucan parables of the travel narrative. And, and so, you know, to, I, I, to give credit where credit's due, I think we have to recognize that the scribe does rightly right. discern the gist of God's right. commands, but unfortunately, the parable and the final dialogue makes it clear that, or at least implies, that he has no intention of carrying them out. Well, I, gosh, and this is such a human thing, right? We mm-hmm. understand what things are, but we don't really understand the spirit. And this is Jesus is getting us really into into the 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 person of God, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, who who God is, and Surely. therefore how how we respond into God's being instead of this kind of prescriptive way of of, of going yeah. about about life. I might say it, you know, I might say it this way, you know, Jesus is really getting at the heart of what it means to live in a relationship of faith yeah, yeah. and gra- and love with God, you know, living in the light of God's love for us and right. responding to that love right. with a love that we share with others. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that's a, another way to say it. 
So, you know, one of the things I've always been interested in this, I've always found interesting in this passage is that Jesus' response to the lawyer's answer to love God and to, and to love your neighbor is, do this and you will live. Yeah, yeah. Because those of us with, with ears that are more trained to Paul's mm-hmm. emphasis on grace versus law, you know, might hear that as, well, Jesus really didn't, didn't really just say, you know, obey the commands and you will have life. Right. Did he? And, and the reality is he did. (laughs) And so one of the things we need to notice is that there is an emphasis on doing. That's a theme, Mm -hmm. not only in this parable, but also in Luke's theology. So in verse 25, the lawyer asks him, what must I do? Jesus in verse 28 says, do this and you will live. And then the answer, you know, when Jesus asks the the scribe, which one uh, showed uh, compassion, you know, which one uh, followed the commands, uh, the, 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 the lawyer answers the, literally the one who did mercy with him. That's a literal translation of the Greek. And so the verb to do is also in that mm, answer. Interesting. Most of our English translations say the one who showed him mercy. Right. But the verb is to do. Oh, that's so really it's also interesting. There. Yeah, that's and then, of course, in verse 37, Jesus says, go and do likewise. Do. So there's mm-hmm. an emphasis on doing in this mm-hmm. passage. And in general, I would say Jesus endorsed the law, not only as an expression of God's command for conduct of his people, but also as an aspect of what it means to yeah. have eternal life. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, we hear this based on Paul's criticizing criticisms of Judaizing Christians who insisted that obedience to the law was a prerequisite for salvation right, through right, faith, right, right. primarily in Galatians 3, 10 through 14. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Uh, right. I think in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we, we have to presuppose the view of the law in the context right. of a covenant relationship with God as presented in the Hebrew right, Bible. Right. And in the Hebrew Bible, it's clear that the basis for the covenant relationship with God was his love, mercy, and grace which reach, right. reached out to the people, the, Abraham and his descendants, first. And so obeying God's, obeying, obeying God's commands was intended, along with faith, right. as a way of main, maintaining one's relationship with God, not right. gaining right. one's relationship right. with right. God. Well, it's a, and it, I would say it's a response. Yes, it it's is. a response to that faithfulness. And, 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 well, I, I would say it's a part of the response of faith. Yeah. Part of what it means to respond to God's love and mercy and grace right, and faith right, is right. that yeah. not only that you have a change of heart, but also that you right. have a change of life. Yeah, and I think that's where that whole 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 thing that comes back to is that this way you... Um, it, it's part of what it means to have eternal life. To live, life. and you will yeah. live. Yeah. yeah, do this and you will live. Right. And so it's not, <laughs> it's not like you're not alive, but you're not alive in God, right? right? You're not, you're not fully alive into that person God's called you to be when you aren't participating in the commands. So in, in Luke's gospel, what it means to have eternal life is to respond to God's grace and love in faith that translates into the way you live. Yeah. 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 Well, and then, you know, sorry, I'm going on on this. Then obviously when you respond this way, then you are reaching out to the world in mm-hmm. this way, which then is impacting the world. Absolutely. And it's, it's, so it's this wonderful kind of, it is. it's not, a, it's not simple. Like, like we want to view it as a simple thing. I mean, it's, it's got a, 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 a rippling effect it does. and, and that indeed, it's not just about you. It's about how you live your life. Yeah. In the world. And that yeah. indeed really humanity. produces, if you will, a, a, a um, a kingdom of God. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you know, one of the reasons why I've been so drawn to this passage is because over the years I have read so many comments on this passage that are just nothing short of hermeneutical gymnastics, you know, artificial qualifications and explanations as to why Jesus did not really mean to say, do this and you will have life. You know, that right. this is not what Jesus meant to say, because obviously you cannot have life by doing anything. And that just disrespects regards the whole setting for the right. for the, the the background the context in in which Jesus said do this and you will live mm, very good uh, and, and really it reads it, it reads it more through the Pauline through Pauline eyes and and Paul was dealing with a different situation he was dealing with Judaizing Christians who were claiming right. Gentiles had to first commit to obeying the law as a prerequisite to being saved by faith mm-hmm. in Christ and mm-hmm. that's a different situation yeah that's and I think friends that's an important because you're going to run across commentaries that have that kind of um, background yep. and there's going to be this temptation to read it in that space and um, 
I think that takes it away from, yeah, what what's intended. Yeah, I think most of us in the Reformed tradition have been so thoroughly schooled by Pauline theology that it's hard for us to hear Jesus say, do this and you will live. Right. But if we hear it in the, in the right context, I don't think Jesus is saying anything different from what Paul is saying. I mean, Paul is just as much about how one's faith is going to transform one's life right. as anybody, right? Right, right, exactly, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's our, our tendency to, to want to make things into literal mm-hmm. literalisms that we, are we press be. things beyond what they're meant to bear. Yeah, 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 and even Calvin will pick up on on some of that yeah. idea of that this is pressing be- beyond where it goes, mm-hmm. and so um, I give him kudos for that. Yeah, definitely. So we're finally to our yes. This parable. does bring us to the parable of the Good Samaritan, as it has come to be known in the English Bible tradition. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's not necessarily the tram- the title in every in every language tradition, but that's the that's the title in the English. Bible tradition. And, you know, the entire content of this parable is unique to Luke's gospel. In the entire gospel tradition, it is found nowhere else. Yes, yes. And so I think it would be appropriate then to set the context for the parable by observing that it would have shocked Jesus' audience on several levels. First of all, while the scribes and the Pharisees might not have thought much about the priest and the Levite, you know, in terms of the general Jewish society, they would have been seen as respected leaders. Mm-hmm. and But secondly, I mean, in Jesus' day, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Right. So what a bad title. It I mean, was, when you think about it. There was it. no such yeah. thing. That was an oxymoron in Jesus' day. Right. Samaritans were the unclean Samaritans, the unwelcome Samaritans, mm-hmm. or the hated Samaritans. And although Jesus' fellow Jewish men and women very well knew the command to love your neighbors yourself, I think it would be clear that the vast majority, including not, this lawyer, not the would never have thought to view a Samaritan as a neighbor whom one must love as oneself. You know, We're going to come back to that. And one of the challenges... <laughs> several here is that we don't live in that time so for Mm -hmm. us it's just another group of people Mm -hmm. two this title good samaritan has come to be this kind of happy feeling well it's such a cultural icon for us it is and it's it's actually really a problem because it keeps us from really being able to to hear the scripture as jesus was teaching it and um it's an obstacle even when we even when we even when we teach it, our minds are still, oh, but I, I, I really don't know how to break that. Yeah. Um, and whether we ever can, it's become just part of the... I have some, I'll have culture. some suggestions about that before we're done. Maybe we could do that at the end. That'd be yeah. a good conversation yeah. to yeah. have. Okay, yeah. so yeah. moving on. So then Jesus begins the parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took, took off, leaving him half dead. And... You know, it's important to recognize that this man, who is one of the characters in the parables, was a Jewish man. You know, that would have been a given, but it's not stated specifically, right? And so we don't, I don't know that we necessarily, that doesn't necessarily enter into our, factor into our interpretation of the parable. This was a Jewish man, that is someone whom a fellow Jewish person would indeed recognize as someone to whom one was obligated to show love. Right. Well, so, okay, so but I want to I want to push back because this was asked to me before. How do you know it's a Jewish man if it is not stated it's a Jewish man? It's just the context. I mean, that Jesus is talking to Jewish people. Okay. Jesus and and it's 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 implied. I think just by the whole setting. Okay. This okay. guy was a Jewish man. Okay. And so so you know the 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 implication is that the Levite and the priest would have been, should have felt an obligation to care for this man because of the command to love your neighbors yourself. This man was inside the boundaries of, 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 that were drawn in the Jewish world of who was, who was a neighbor and who wasn't. And so he would have been, he, he, he should have been someone that they saw as someone to whom they hold the obligation of love. So in other words, in the biblical tradition, if this had been anyone but a Jewish man, it would have had that title of... Uh, Gentile or uh, well, a Samaritan. Yes, or a, yes. Okay. I think he would have been identified as okay. specifically as such. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Moving on then. So then in the parable, a priest and a Levite both encountered this injured Jewish man and passed him by. Now, since the common people gravitated toward the leaders of the synagogue rather than the temple establishment, the audience may have expected this as a subtle criticism of those who are affiliated with the temple as being detached 
from the people and lacking in compassion for them. But that's not the point of Jesus' parable. And also, I would say, many have speculated, I've seen this in a lot of commentaries too, many have speculated that there may have been ritual considerations that prevented the priest and Levite from interacting with the wounded man and thus sort of letting them mm, off the hook. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think that's mm. the point either. I think Jesus was drawing his audience in by sort of telling a story that would have initially kind of reinforced some of their assumptions and some of their stereotypes so that when he gets to the twist, it would be all the more uh, surprising. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because I've heard it preached that way several times yeah, where yeah. that's, well, you know, he was really doing what he was supposed to be doing no. and, and um, um, kind of, as you said, letting them off the hook. Yep. So, okay. I, I, think, I don't think that's a part of Jesus' parable. I, don't, I think Jesus is, 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 is telling a story about um, a Levite and a priest who knew that they were commanded to love their neighbors themselves, and they passed this man by. Okay. And that's how I originally heard it, actually. Mm-hmm. This has been a later, kind of a later ad- adaptation to it, I suppose. Um, so moving on. So then in Luke's gospel, Jesus wastes no time getting to the point, or we might say the twist in the parable. It was a Samaritan who, when he saw the injured man, was moved with compassion. He did not hesitate to put that compassion into action. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you what whatever you more you spend. And so it's this unclean, despised Samaritan who is the one who carries out the essential demand of the law by caring for this man. And it only heightens the irony to realize that this injured Jewish man would probably, under normal circumstances, have despised the Samaritan. Mm -hmm. And if the situation were reversed, he would not even have thought twice about passing an injured Samaritan by on this Mm -hmm. road. Mm -hmm. He would not think that he was obligated to show uh, love to this this Samaritan. And and I think the further irony is that in the final dialogue, even this lawyer, even this Torah scholar, an expert in the he, he's an expert in the in the in mm-hmm. the teaching and the study of the law so much so that he rightly summarizes the gist of God's commandments. And yet he betrays his belief that a Samaritan would not have qualified as a neighbor whom he would have felt compelled to love. I think we should notice how when Jesus asked which of the three acted as a neighbor to the injured man, the lawyer would not even say the Samaritan, but he only says the one who showed mercy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is really, really interesting when you read it because it just doesn't hit us the same way because we do not have that sense of, but this is like, this is like a hated person. This is the guy from the opposite gang. This is like... Mm -hmm. This is just, um, it's really hard to wrap your brain around mm-hmm. when we read it because its it has such a light surface thing. But this sure. is one where they, they can't even it's say a heavy the parable. name. It's, it's, really, yeah. it's really heavy. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Yes. Now, in order to fully understand the impact, uh, you know, sort of getting at what you're talking about here, I think we can observe that it would have been one thing for Jesus to tell a parable about a particularly righteous Jewish person who showed mercy mm-hmm. toward a Samaritan, that would have been something that would not have really offended people quite as much. And that person would have been seen as exceptionally compassionate, but the story would have left intact the Jewish people's sense of ethnic mm-hmm. and spiritual superiority and and also their boundaries around what mm-hmm. was clean and what was unclean, and therefore who, who they were obligated to love and who they didn't have any obligation to love. Anybody outside that boundary of clean and unclean was not a neighbor, and they did not view them as someone they were obligated to love. And so to some extent to tell a Jewish person in the first century to go and do likewise in imitation of the Samaritan would have been like telling many people in our churches today to go and imitate the compassion of an unhoused person. You know, a lot of people who are living on the streets, they look after their own. They have a community of their own. And there's some people who are ruthless, but there are other people who who are very, very much kind and giving. But, but to say to people in our churches, you know, go be the good homeless person, 
<laughs> yeah. That would right, be right, that would right, be right. shocking. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps even an undocumented immigrant. You know, mm-hmm. for, for a lot of people, the undocumented immigrant is sort of the bad guy in our society. Whoever we see as sort of the, the bad guy in our society, you know. Yeah, something like that. Just something I, I keep thinking of. I mean, because I think there's, you're right, it depends on, on which, which people we're talking to. I think a lot of people have compassion actually for undocumented Absolutely. immigrants. Absolutely, and unhoused people. Uh, exactly, but then... I, I keep thinking of, so if each person is listening to it with their own ears, it's like that the person that's done you injury. And mm. I think that's where it's the, the person that shamed me, mm. the person that I loathe inside. Right. Right. And that's how the Samaritans are viewed. It was like they did a moral injury um, that that worked its way into you know, really feuding. Oh, yeah. Um it was the Hatfields tribes, versus McCoys. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the depth of it that I don't think we can Even though, get into. But at the same time, you know, while, while people in our churches would, would have compassion and empathy toward homeless persons or undocumented workers, to say, go and follow their example, they're the example that you should yeah, follow, yeah. that would challenge even I think people who have sympathy or compassion for them because that sort of turns the tables. Right. E, you know, if we are are middle class Americans, you know, self sustaining, you right. know, there's a certain sense of self that right. goes with that, right? And and that that homeless people and undocumented workers are beneath that right. social status, and so the, then to say to take that person out of that out of that social status and lift them up as the example for people who, who are middle class and have this sort of self-respecting, you know, ideal of themselves to follow the example of that person. That, I think that one might be a challenge to some of our people. I think so too. I, this is reminding me of a little story. Um, there's this kind of famous, uh, uh, Alex's lemonade stand. It's yeah. a foundation for childhood cancer. And so we did this one year as a, uh, fundraiser or for this i mean it's, it's charity so you sell the, the the lemonade kind of the old like the little kids lemonade except the money goes to cancer research and so what's interesting about this little boy scouts did this they were little, little cubs and uh it was surprising it was usually the people that really didn't have the money at all mm. but often the ones who would purchase the lemonade to give support to the wow. cancer foundation yeah. found that more often than not that mm-hmm. it's these folks and they seem to have a real heart for the people that have helped them over the years and, and well, they know um, what it's like to be in need. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what an interesting, mm-hmm. what an interesting yeah. twi- twist. Now, so I think it's important for us again to come back to this idea that in Jesus' day, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was turning the world upside down. The outcast becoming the ideal for those who viewed themselves as above this hated, despised, unclean Samaritan. It was shocking, it was confusing, and it was offensive to them because it removed the barriers between clean and unclean that were the foundation for the whole Jewish religion. You know, we talked about this once about why Jesus was crucified, and it was partly because he, he, he basically removed all these barriers, which was the foundation for the whole temple system. Right. But it was not just the temple system, it was also the legal system. Right, right. Uh, you know, the, the, the interpretation of the law right. was, was based on this idea of there, there are there are those who are clean, and right. those are the ones that you're obligated right. to to um, to treat in a manner that is consistent with God's commands. And right. there are those who are outside that boundary; those are the unclean. You don't have any obligations to them that. whatsoever. Well, yeah, it's, it's it's and that's that's how that's the societal paradigm yep. from which everything works and functions that everyone works into. And Jesus said, "Oh," and we talked about right. this. Flips it upside he down. Flips it upside down. Yep. And I think it's I think we can I, and from that perspective, I think we can say that this lawyer's question who is my neighbor, was motivated by his interest in reinforcing those boundaries that he already presupposed, clarifying for him then who was excluded from the command to love. He wasn't interested in showing you know who you know showing compassion he he really wasn't interested in showing compassion i think i think this man if he had been on the road to jericho he probably would have passed by an injured jewish man as well because he was more he was more caught up in well what does the law say and i think part of this parable is to show that this guy is missing the point because he's not willing to put in what he knows into practice mm-hmm. 
So then the parable functions in the context of Jesus' ministry to expose the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious teachers and their obsession with correctly interpreting and teaching the commands, while they had no real intention of actually putting into practice the mercy and the compassion that is the essence of God's commands. And again, although the lawyer fares pretty well in his ability to answer the question initially um, uh, because he correctly identifies the essence of the Torah in the long run, he doesn't come out looking so good because he shows he really has no interest in carrying it out. Yeah. Now, what I think is a little bit more difficult to surmise is what the function in the context of Luke's community might have been, and thus what the application for our time might be. You know, he may have been concerned with a similar kind of hypocritical religiosity taking root in Christian communities, but clearly I think, you know, that's one possibility, but I think clearly what we should recognize is the question of what it means to follow Jesus in discipleship comes to the fore here. Yes, I agree. So from that perspective, perspective, I think the important question that the parable raises for us is not who is my neighbor, but rather how can I be a neighbor to others? Mm Mm-hmm. And that's leave it open-ended, basically, right, right. And in, film, in fulfillment of God's command, basically. How can I be a neighbor to others and right. then thus truly fulfill right. the kind of compassion and mercy that God wants me to, to, to live out of? So the answer then is by practicing mercy Mercy and compassion to to all, all, right? And the point is not to define the neighbor as the object of mercy, but rather to define one's own attitude and actions in terms of being a neighbor as an active effort to show the mercy and compassion to others. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus kind of turns the whole question on its head, and it turns it from, well, who do I have to love and who do I not have to love into the, the, the meaning of, you shall love your neighbor as yourself is because you've experienced God's love. Right. You're going to want to share that love with anyone you meet. Exactly. <laughs> Which is really, you know, and, and so, you know, we're talking about this and this, and this, this wonderful idea. Okay. I got it. But then you think about right now, these, the, the anger. And I mean, mm. we are at such a time where we have so and much fear, fear and anger and hatred towards people and, and so it really makes you step back, take a deep breath and think of, they're my neighbor too, so how do I reach right. out with that love? And that, that's an actually an awesome, awesome to think about if, if, if indeed that you can respond. And humbling. And you can do in right. that response. And right. it, it really challenges our broken humanity. It does indeed. Mm-hmm. It does indeed. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we are going to see what uh, Calvin had to say about this particular passage. So, Christy, clue us in, please. Yeah. So, I looked at the commentaries today, and uh, it's it's kind of interesting because in this are some of. Um, I think Calvin's main theological points that he develop will develop later in some in in some of the things he does in the institutes, but but there's some really important um, um, development of of reformed theology that he he takes from this passage. So what's interesting is in right at the beginning he's in his um, harmonizing of the gospels, and so he 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 lumps this together with Matthew twenty two thirty four through forty and and Mark twelve twenty eight through thirty four. Um, and of course, Alan already acknowledged that those are this, the beginnings are in these two gospels, but in a different place. And Calvin admits this is true as well. <laughs> so to, to credit for him, he recognizes that, um, um, that, uh, it, it's not the same, which he often does, but he says he's going to go ahead and lump it together here because he still thinks it's referencing the same Incident. Well, and he's trying, you know, his in, his his goal is to come up with this sort of universal mm-hmm. biography right. of Jesus. Exactly. But I love that he's kind of admitting that this seems to be mm. not, this is an ideal. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I, I like that about about him. Um, but um, he, he notes, um, and one of the things he says, he says, he notes that the scribe introduced in Mark, Matthew and Mark goes away with no bad disposition and that he might be teachable. 
Um, of course, and that already is lumping together Matthew and Mark, yeah. which is probably not fair in itself. And we've talked about that it, before it's in a not, podcast. Because in, in Matthew, in Matthew, uh, the it's it's the text specifically says that the if, he's not a scribe; he's called a Pharisee in right. Matthew, and he asks the question to test him. There's no sense of oh, this guy might be might be teachable. That's only found in Mark's gospel, right, and right. in Mark's gospel, you know, there's no sense that when the, when it's he is called a scribe. Um, in Mark's gospel, uh, when he asks the question of Jesus, there's no sense of he's right. trying to test Jesus. And at the end, Jesus says, "You're not far from the kingdom of God." That's right. only in Mark's gospel. Right. That's not in in any other. Exactly. So, so <laughs> he's kind of lumping it all together. He is lumping those two. And what's interesting, and we've talked about this before. Mark was kind of seen as an unfinished mm-hmm. gospel anyway. So um, again, there's just some limits to where they're at. But uh, so he does that. But um, he puts Luke in there again because there's similarity, but recognizes that uh, in Luke, this this now lawyer um, is obstinate and swelled with pride. Hmm. So he makes an observation. It's 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 different. I'm kind of surprised that he calls the guy a scribe because, you know, the typical approach would have been to follow Matthew as the primary gospel, mm-hmm. and Matthew calls him a Pharisee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark calls him a scribe. So that's an interesting point. Oh, so, so Calvin also uh, agrees that it is the questioning of the scribe in all three Gospels as an effort to deceive Christ. Mm. And so he sees this consistent theme that if Jesus speaks against the law, then he might mm. be promoting revolt against God's true kingdom. At least in, in the eyes of the Jewish leaders. In the eyes of the Jewish leaders, yeah. exactly. Okay. So um, then... Beyond that kind of introductory part, um, I'm going to talk about the themes. And so the one really big one is this whole righteousness before God, the relationship between grace and works. And one of the really important analyses here of is Calvin's theology of grace. And he specifically alludes to the statement in Luke, what is written in the law? So for Calvin, this is a definition of the importance between the gospel and the law. The law in itself is, as Calvin notes, does nothing but condemn. However, and that sounds very Paul-like, right? It does. Um, And however, the law, according to Calvin, does offer a prescription for how folks should leave in order to be accounted righteous. That's also very Pauline in terms of the the function of the law. Exactly. The law should act as an instruction for how people should live their lives. In other words, a Christian should live by these laws in response to their salvation. Calvin states, Therefore, no one is justified by the law, yet the law itself contains the highest righteousness, because it does not falsely hold our salvation for its followers, if any one fully observed all that it commands. So this is kind of a deep statement, because it notes that the law is really so perfect and that it does not claim to do other than it can do people um, should be convinced of their righteousness condemnation as 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 calvin puts it in other words people despite all their efforts should understand that they need god's grace and this is really good calvinist theology right? it is and, and it's also it's also really good paul i mean because paul has his three uses of the law there's the mm-hmm. civil use which basically is sort of a civilizing function there is the teaching use in that it points out sin basically and and points them to their need for grace and there is the um um, I guess the what we would call the moralistic use, or the fact that it points it it provides an example for how to live. Right, right. You know? And that's that's it's good. It's good Pauline theology. It's good Reformed right. theology as exactly. well. Exactly. And 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 I and I loved it because it it really it really sets out the relationship between works and salvation, and how the striving to reach salvation through works reminds us only of how in inept we are and capable of doing. I would say, though, I would want to push back on Calvin's uh, interpreting this passage in that way, because mm-hmm. I think he's reading, he, he's reading definitely, he's reading Jesus through Pauline theology right, here. Right, and, and as we talked about in my segment, you know, Jesus is coming at this from a different perspective. Right. And I think what's important, and as you're going to see in the next part, and I was talking to Alan about this ahead of time, he does this whole analysis in response to that one mm-hmm. little phrase, because he's going to turn turn now as he starts 
full later analysis. And he never comes by with a kind of concluding overall picture, which I think is one of the challenges with these Reformation style commentaries. They go so verse by verse that sometimes you feel like the broader picture isn't together. And it's of kind of fragmented, yeah. It's fragmented. And that's where we get a different view of that when we go to the institutes because we see these broad right. theological right. statements supported right. by these individual things. He's thinking more um, synthetically there. He's really pulling yeah, things together. Exactly, yeah. where this is more kind of a response. But we still get these. Uh, it almost feels like, and I'm, I'm sure this is not fair, but it almost feels like a bit of a stream of consciousness mm-hmm. kind of no. as he's working through I, these. I would agree. I mean, with my experience with Calvin's commentaries, mm-hmm. I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's okay. Okay, I just think we have to be aware of what it is and what mm-hmm. it isn't. Yeah, the limitations um, the, of it. There's yeah. limitations there. And honestly, as prolific as these folks were and and compared to how we work today and how we might write all this and then we'd use that as a ba- background to craft an argument and put it in, that's just not how mm-hmm. these are constructed. And you can't make them modern kind right. of... Um, I was uh, thinking the same thing. He's still papers. an early modern person. Yes, yeah. yes. So the next theme that I loved actually was the love of God. Um, and uh, I think when we study Calvin, most of us are more in tune with his comments on the sovereignty of God. But in this next piece of analysis, he spends a good deal, time, deal of time with the love of God. And this is in response to the first commandment that is repeated in this text. Um, here, Calvin does a really complete analysis of the love of God as the centerpiece of faith. It is a response to God's adoption of us. To fully love God is to fully trust God, and therefore, this commandment to love the Lord your God allows us to live fully into our creation. The rules of life that follow then hinge on the love of God. No one will obey God unless they fully love God. And, and see, <laughs> at this point, at the, and this is where I would say, yes, yes, yes. This is what Jesus is saying. Yeah, yeah. I would agree 100% with what he says Isn't here. It? Yeah. <laughs> so you can't really regulate your life until, as quote, the love of God fills all our senses. So doing works without the love of God, without faith, is a burden. God, God wants us to respond freely out of love and that these works would come from that love. As Calvin puts it, quote, from a good root, good fruits may grow. It is not the, the appear, appearance of works, not the external, but rather the inward mm-hmm. conviction that leads to outward expression. Yeah, and I mean, I, fe- I feel like that's a lot more consistent with what I was saying about interpreting Jesus' statement in light of the, the, the role of the covenant and, and, yeah. and God's love and grace yeah. and mercy in the covenant. But he doesn't yeah. ever synthesize these together. <laughs> I know, so yeah. So you're kind of in this, this lurching space. But, yeah. but in both cases... In both cases, he's making really important um, Protestant statements sure. as opposed to kind of Roman Catholic understanding of works. And that's yeah. really a big shift for us. And, and he'll, he'll, he'll attack them a little bit later here, but um, of course he will. Well, um, and, you know, I mean, uh, Calvin was a man of his time. He's going to be interpreting Scripture in light of his situation, and, yeah. and, and obviously he's going to bring his theological presuppositions to it. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I don't fault him for that so much as I just, I just want to push back and say, well, it's okay. Yeah, that's, that's a great statement for what Paul has to say yeah, about the law, well, but exactly. that's not so great about what Jesus exactly, is saying. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So another theme is the love of neighbor. And so he says, if we love God, then the second part of the law is to show mutual kindness among people. And he, he's talking about really, you know, the Ten Commandments, which have the two, the two kind of spaces, mm-hmm. the one yep. with relationship between the person and God and then between neighbor and neighbor. So he said this is this kind of similar structure. You know, I, I, I don't know that either one of us has the answer to this, but I've, I've often tried to figure out where that began. Inter- you know, it's, it's in some of our Reformed catechisms, mm-hmm. but I'm, I have often tried to figure out where that began, that, that sense of the first oh. commandments relate to loving God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The second set of commandments relates to loving your neighbor well, yourself. Well, it definitely is in Calvin. Oh, it's definitely. So, and it's, it's in the Heidelberg Catechism, yeah, I believe. Yes. And it's in Luther's Catechisms as well, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's in the Westminster Catechisms. So, but where it happened. Where did that. it start? Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's so, a question I've always wanted to figure out. <laughs> so the God in the first order, and then to love neighbors, which is dependent on the first. It's dependent on the first. So this one, that, the, that God, um, loving God, then the second one comes into play. 
And he notes that it is impossible for, quote, the love of God to reign without producing brotherly kindness among men. Um, and he does also remind us that loving neighbors is before loving self. Um, he attacks the sophists of the Sermon <laughs> um, who advocated a self-love. Um, and, of course, this is accusatory towards the Roman Catholics. Is really the root of this. Um, here, neighbors are, um, in his world, equal rank and causing us to pay as much attention to neighbors as to ourselves. So it's not a self-love and then then go out, but it's really a, a, a more full love that we're responding out of God's love to take care of others. Um, and I think that's an important point. It's not that we're loving others because we love ourselves. It's we're loving others because we've experienced God's love for us. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's huge in today's world. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so... Um, um, then he goes on um, to the next part, and who is my neighbor, by claiming that in the eyes of the Pharisees, who Calvin attributed to this statement, was that neighbors should be somehow worthy. And we talked mm -hmm. about that in our discussion before with the parable um, that that the Pharisee probably likely wasn't seeing the Samaritan as a, as a neighbor. Right. Um, he further answered that this was not really in the practice of the Pharisees who were looking to the idea of worthiness of neighbors. Calvin notes that all human beings, all are called as neighbors. And he really emphasizes the bond of all human beings. And this, in Calvin's opinion, leads to our parable. So this is where Calvin's really advocating very mm -hmm. radical, broad love towards all people. Um, and I, um, I am really impressed that he's not trying to pull this parable out of context in which Luke places it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it's particularly important because coming into the Reformation times is a whole bunch of allegorical interpretations right. of this. And he does not buy any of them. Um, and he, he actually identifies three different allegories. For example, that the half-dead man uh, reflected that there was still some good in him. Um, even though he was fallen. Even though he was fallen and that he could be saved. And this allegory of the parables is a commentary on a corrupt human nature. Um, another one is the use of Samaritan as Christ and mm -hmm. the church, the innkeeper. And he's like, I don't. He quote, I don't have any liking for these interpretations. We ought to have deeper reverence for Scripture than to reckon ourselves at liberty to disguise its natural meaning. Well, and you know, as a student of the history of hermeneutics, that was something that really came to the fore in the Reformation was yes. the emphasis on the literal meaning yes. of, the, of, the, of, the, of the passage. But, you know, as we talked about before, in, in, in medieval times, and even going back to Augustine, there was this sense that the highest meaning of, of Scripture was the anagogical mm -hmm. sense, which really was sort of like a spiritual yeah, interpretation yeah. of the text. Exactly. And, and you had to kind of read between the lines of the literal text to, to get to this, right. this anagogical exactly. or spiritual sense. Yeah. And, and that's how they justified their, their allegorical interpretation yeah, yeah, of parables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I pointed this out because this still is floating around in some circles, these oh, yeah. allegorical um, things, you know, mostly more obscure sex, but it's still out there. And sometimes mm. you run across it. If you go Google this, you probably run across it somewhere. Yeah. So it was kind of a, a reminder of, of, of good exegesis, right. you know, what, and what that is. And while Calvin is still a, product of his time he's, he's important for our our modern exegesis well today. he he and the other reformers yeah, really absolutely. did um, um sort of take turn a corner with biblical hermeneutics and yeah. emphasize you know you 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 go with the literal meaning of the text right, you don't right. you don't you don't go with some sort of spiritual meaning that exactly. you you bring to the text exactly so that's what i have from calvin but i also had a little bit of fun um part of my part of my interest and and this Partly, partly came from a, um, a uh, conference I went to, and somebody was talking about travel. And during the 16th century, there's a lot of travel logs that are printed in, in the early printed works because people wanted to know what it was like somewhere else. So, travel logs was a really legitimate uh, form of publication. And I found it. I found a scholar, Luigi Monga, and he's since passed, but that did some work on these travel logs in. Um, and really talking about the danger of travel and mm. really um, the part of it, the combination of, of kind of 
the travel experience that they're recording this, but also then the kind of lore that comes out because obviously travelers that, that died didn't write their travel logs to be saved, <laughs> but there really was a great fear of travel. And this is something in the story of the Good Samaritan that's kind of left out of our concept. We think, oh, he's traveling from place to place, big deal. But this is really, really dangerous mm-hmm. to travel, especially alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's something we have forgotten about. But he, um, and so he actually referenced this experience. But this was true not only in the ancient world, but also in um, the time Calvin lived. It still was dangerous to travel from city to city, and it was um, who was outside the city was was scary characters. This is where all the executions are performed, not only in the ancient world, but also in the early modern world. Wow. And so you'd pass by, you know corpses and all kinds of horrible things and so just a reminder of how when we think about the story in the terms of the danger of travel it really gives it even more punch yet Mm. and how really dangerous it was for the samaritan who's already out of context for the people passing by Mm -hmm. um he's at great danger to help this person well yeah and you know that's that's one of the other that's one of the other sort of um explanations that have been offered to sort of let the Levite and the priest and the parable off the hook is that oh. is that the road from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho was viewed as a dangerous one mm-hmm. and so they they you know this Jewish traveler gets attacked by bandits and they're they're trying to avoid the same right, fate right whereas the Samaritan is courageous enough to stop and help right yeah. right and and I, probably this analysis doesn't really I, I, I don't know that it fits that in that, but just... Oh, I think whole, it does. I think it does. I, travel was dangerous in the ancient world. Very, and especially traveling alone. It travel, yeah. Especially, well, that's why they would go in these huge caravans if right. they could, right? And, and it was also why hospitality was so important as, yeah. a, as a virtue in the Christian world, in, right. the, in, the, in, the early, in the early Christian church, because these traveling teachers and preachers, they couldn't just stay at an right. inn because the inn was not safe. And right. so they needed a safe right. place to right. be able to stay. So uh, this, oh, I, for what it's worth, some of the, according to uh, uh, Professor Manga, the, the, some of the most impressive and thorough um, travel logs were those of the Jesuits, actually. Wow. So mm. um, kind of an interesting aside for us, but, uh, uh, you know, I think it adds a little more punch to the, sure. the story. Thanks, Christy. Yep. Hi, everybody. We're back. And as we were talking in our break, the, the challenge with this parable is that you can talk to even non-Christians, and most people have some idea of a Good Samaritan, what the Good Samaritan does. It's become, you know, gosh, we have Good Samaritan, you know, uh, healthcare, Good Samaritan. And so it's become part of our kind of culture, our, our extra Christian culture. And yet, uh, and then I've seen all these people, and they do these they, to try to be to try to give some punch to this story. They, they used interpretations sometimes, which aren't even very good ones, trying to just make it fresh. Um, and so I think that's our challenge is how do we keep it from being mundane, um, just the same story all over again, without really going outside of the, of the scripture as it's presented to us. So, well, and I mean, you know, my, my standard answer to that is to look at the, 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 the historical and cultural setting of the original parable. And, you know, in that setting, in that time, you know, as I said, the, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. The Samaritan was a hated Samaritan. Right. The Herod Samaritan was an unclean Samaritan. And so, you know, to some extent, I think the way we, we bring sort of the shock value of this parable into our day is to think about those who are a threat to our existence or those right. whom we perceive to be a threat to our existence. Right, right, But right. even more than that, <clears throat> when Jesus makes this Samaritan the, you know, the paradigm, the exemplar for what it right. means to love wow. your neighbors yourself. That's really flipping it upside down. Well, right. it just bursts all the boundaries of clean and unclean that this, that this Jewish... Torah scribes, you know, Torah scholar would have assumed. And, and so it not only, you know, not only was the presence of the Samaritan in the parable a threat to the Jewish people in, in terms of their, their existence, but it was also a threat, you know, his interpretation on it was a threat 
to their very sense of who God is. Yeah. So it would it was yeah. something that was challenging their very sense of God. Right. So, you know, at that point, you know, we we've, we've got to think even deeper, you know, how do we get to a space in which, you know, we're dealing with someone who challenges our our notion about who God is. Right. Yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, and that even that you know, part of he's like, well, you could put it in the context of different religions, but this is this is deeper than that. Yes. This is this is like this is a sense of of my my. I mean, I think a lot of people think of different faith traditions while they're living their truth, but this is like this. I I have the truth. You don't have mm-hmm. the truth. You are wrong, and because and 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 wrong in a way that you're damned for being wrong. And I think yeah. we've. I think I think when we go there, because if you want it, you if you want to have eternal life, this is the way to to have eternal yeah, life. Jesus says right, is right. by responding to God's right. love by loving all right. people and by breaking through any barriers, any boundaries exactly. of clean and unclean that we might be assuming. Right. So, and these know, are people that are in the minds of the Jewish people outside of the chosen. They are outside of God's they're care unclean? and love. They're unclean. Yeah. So this is a very strange, I mean, this, this is a, this is a, a family battle. This is, this is mm-hmm. a, this is the, um, I'm thinking of, uh, Romeo and Juliet, the mm-hmm. Montagues and the Capulets and this just d- deep hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we could possibly think about North and South, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the civil war in the American history, yeah. you know, yep. because, uh, after the Civil War was over, there was deep hatred on the part of the South. I mean, there's still some places in the South where they're still fighting the Civil War, That's and true. there's still deep hatred for for the Yankees. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, and they call it the War of Northern Aggression. Right. Or I think of it in in Islam. You know, if you're an apostate, it's it's a death. It's for in, in many of the many the of infidel. the cities, it's it's a punishment that's you know you can die for because mm-hmm. it, there's it's 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 such an as, affront to the culture whereas instead of a loving accepting concept it's say no you have you have committed the worst crime pro- mm-hmm. possible and so this is hard for us americans in, in american get, christianity yeah it's get, hard for us to wrap our really brains is. around I, I mean i think you know for me you know the biggest threat to my the biggest threat that I feel is the divide between red and blue mm-hmm. in our country in terms of the political divide. Yeah. Um, and, you know, regardless of which side you're on, you tend to hear the other side as a threat to your way of life, mm-hmm. as a threat to your rights, as a threat to your existence. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I mean, whatever side you're on, you know, when you, when you listen to people from the other side speaking, you know, it's like you just can't even stand to hear them speak. Right. And, and you know, here I'm, I'm saying this, I'm admitting this as, a, as a, a minister of word and sacrament, one who seeks to be intentional about following Jesus Christ in discipleship, and I have this problem. I mean, I, I, people who are across that divide and, and, and who are speaking out of their, I guess, their perspective, yeah. I, I, right. it, it feels like a threat to my existence, to my right, rights, right. to my to my um, safety. Right. And, um, you know, do we have the ability to recognize that that person is also a child of God who is beloved by God, someone for whom Christ died? And therefore, you know, if we truly claim to have experienced God's love, we are going to extend love and compassion and mercy to that person as well. <laughs> that's pretty, that's pushing it, it for a it, lot of people. It's definitely pushing it for a lot of people. I mean, there's just this deep, deep hatred between these two sides that are polarized. And for well, and that hatred, I think, comes out of fear. Because uh, oh, on fear. both sides, the narrative that they have that they are that they are telling themselves is that person and their views mm-hmm. represent a threat to my way of life. Right, right. And I, I go so I go beyond fear. I think it's moral injury. Mm-hmm. And I think it's 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 that somehow when that anger pops up, it's because someone feels that they actually are no longer whole. Mm-hmm. That part of that's been taken away. They've taken away your personhood. I, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's, um, 
it, it's really, really, it, it's hard to hear these two because they're, they're, they, they're fighting with so much passion. And to ask them to come center, which is really what we are asking people to do, Meet us is in the middle. super, super yeah. hard because they can't, because it, it, ideologically they're so polarized. And I, I, well, I, I have it. I have a solution, <laughs> but I really, th- <laughs> I mean, I really think the solution is love of God. Mm-hmm. I think I think a solution's in our faith, yeah. and when you start to respond as a child of God and respond to uh, the everyone you know as a child of God, then this whole love of neighbor takes on a whole different tone. And I think this is where you know we, we were talking about. We alluded to this before about the contemporary uh, application of "you shall love your neighbor as yourself" has tended to sort of become this thing well you have to love yourself before you can love your neighbor and of course i mean it's an, it's an obvious you know thing that psychology will tell you you have to have a healthy sense of yourself in order to be able to live your life fully and wholly but this perspective is not you have to love yourself in order to love your neighbor this perspective yeah. is if yeah. you have truly encountered the love of god in your life it will translate into love for others. So I see that as the hope for bridging yeah, this, this divide because it's not love of self that's going right. to enable us to love people right. we perceive as a threat. It is the love of God that we have received from God that is going to help us to overcome that divide. I was, um, I've been reading a book by Jamel, Jamel Green, um, When White Rights Went Wrong, mm-hmm. Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. And that's really what he is talking about. Mm. We become, and, and, and it's, he becomes so caught up with what my right is, myself, my love of self, what, and instead of talking about um, wholeness, what makes mm-hmm. our, our society whole, right. what brings us, what, because if, if it's my right, I'm going to offend someone else's right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a right to smoke, but someone else has a right not to breathe the smoke. So you get two polarized senses there instead of what can I do as my neighbor to help them not feel offended. And so we're thinking almost more about neighbor than we are about what's my right rather than what's 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 our what's their right? Well, and it comes way. back to that sense of reframing the lawyer's question. You know, who is my neighbor was a question that was meant to let him off the hook for loving certain people. But but Jesus' parable really reframes it and, and says it's the right question is not who is my neighbor. The right question is how can I be a neighbor mm-hmm. to yeah. other people? How can I be a neighbor? And I think, I mean, I really think that's a really f- interesting way to preach this too mm-hmm. is how can I be a neighbor to mm-hmm. others? And I think this idea of removing the, um, the, the self focus and reminding people of their neighborness to others and how that translates itself into, into how we are talk about each other. I think when you are, when you're on a, your, your social media and you are pushing these agendas that poke at others. This is not healthy mm-hmm. dialogue. We're this not is being just neighbors. Making it, we're not being neighbors when we mm-hmm. do it. We're just offending people either side. And so talking and, and listening and, and maybe asking somebody, why do you feel that way? Yeah. Yeah. And, and getting in the dialogue mm-hmm. and, and um, I think that's our best shot. I think so too. I've heard some, I've heard some uh, media around that as well, that people who are studying this are saying that's really kind of the only hope mm-hmm. is if we can, if we can set aside our own agenda and, and really get into a, um, a frame of mind where we're willing to listen and we're willing to mm-hmm. engage um, in a, in a compassionate way. Right. And, and we're re- really, essentially, we're just, we're just simply respecting that person's humanity yeah. regardless yeah. of their views. Well, I have to say, I think we were struggling with this, with the rise of our, um, some of our electronic platforms, our social platforms. Uh-huh. And then I think COVID, which forced us home, made it worse. Mm-hmm. So we're not dealing with people face to face. Right. And so we are, the other has become a faceless, mm-hmm. a faceless noise. That's right. And so this, if there's one argument for having your people back in your pews, this mm-hmm. is one of them right there. Mm-hmm. Reconnect, reconnect yeah. and make sure. And, and when people see each other and all of a sudden those disagreements fall apart because it's, I love you. I love being in your, in your space. When I lived in Germany, um, 
I, I worked in, I lived in Germany in 1989, 90. I was on a Fulbright scholarship. I was doing dissertation research for my PhD. It was the year the wall came down and we went to um, an English speaking church in Stuttgart. We lived, we were at Tübingen, which was about 30 miles outside of Stuttgart. And it was a, actually was in another suburb of Stuttgart that we went to church. And um, there were people of all kinds of views, viewpoints, political viewpoints, theological viewpoints, you know, uh, in that church. The pastor was way, 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 way more conservative than I was. Uh, but he invited me to preach on several occasions. Mm. <laughs> and um, what I saw was in that setting where, you know, because of our language, you know, right. it, it wasn't practical to worship. You know, I, mean, I could have muddled, I could have made it through worshiping in a German church, but my wife and kids would not right. have been able to get anything out of that. And so we made the decision to go to this English speaking church. And, because it was the only English speaking church, you know, right. for miles and miles, and, you know, maybe in the whole metropolitan area of, of Stuttgart. Um, we were much, we were just glad to be around other Christians. Right. We didn't care on what side of the divide you were, right, right, you know, politically right. or theologically. We were just glad to be with right. other Christians. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. I, I, I have a, a friend whose husband has been in in Syria. And so it was just kind of all the Christians gathering together, not worrying about all the kinds of things we worry about divide here, us here yeah. the divide us, but rather what we have in common. And yeah. I think that's, I think those commonalities, those, those neighborly commonalities are what, um, what can bring us together as well. Surely. Yeah. Surely. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word.